In New Jersey, we found some key Welcome to this week's episode of Jersey Matters. We're your hosts, Mike Perino. And Casey McLean. This week, we're going to talk about... We A ha- number of great headlines. Yes. What did Murphy do? What did Murphy do? So we're yeah. going to do a little segment... I think we should do weekly, uh, Murphy's Corner. Murphy's where, Corner. you know, obviously the governor, Murphy, what is he up to? What happened to him? What? <laughs> we'll, we'll let you know. We'll let you know in Murphy's Corner. I have an update on the uh, millionaire's tax and the opposition to it. And we have also, uh, what is stranger-originated life insurance and why are we banning it? Also known as solely. Yeah. Which, uh, is it Stoli or solely? Solely? This is Stoli? Is it Stoli? We'll let you know. We'll let you know. (laughs) But my concern when you addressed this issue was, why are they banning the vodka? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And then why is the RNC coming to New Jersey to campaign? Um, We will talk about that. And then we'll talk a little bit about the no-show senator. Yes. Why is he not working? Or is he? (laughs) And then we're going to end the headlines with a lighthearted topic, um, the coronavirus. (laughs) What is going on with the coronavirus in New Jersey? It's here. And how do you protect yourself? Yes. Uh, After the headlines, we're going to talk about... I'll talk about Bloomberg, that time the New York Police Department spied on Muslims in New Jersey. Very casual. Yep. And then uh, I'm going to go into New Jersey history a little bit talk about the first female governor and in this little segment called the year of the five governors five (laughs) what the hell was going on we will stop the podcast and find out (laughs) what was going on with five governors in that year okay so let's begin with murphy's corner what happened with the school stuff okay so a little hiccup in the murphy administration they were calculating school aid And how they do that is, you know, like any kind of audit, you look at how much each school district spent, and I think it could have been like a county by county basis, and you evaluate how much is being spent and how much isn't, and the goal is if you have a budget to spend it all, or you'll be possibly told you're not going to have that much, or maybe you're going to have a cut, depending right, on... Right, because their, their justification is like, well, if you're not spending it, you don't need the money, so exactly. they incentivize people to spend the, the budget and, that they get. And depending on what counties, you know, decide to spend, because the budget for the county, from my understanding, is they control property taxes and a number of different taxes um, within their jurisdiction, and then they can allocate money to certain school districts and then school districts public schools in particular they get a number of funds from the government the state government and as well as like the federal government depending on you know where it falls and murphy's you know administration they had a little hiccup this week where they calculated the school funding based on the previous year so they used the wrong year to disperse funds and that was going to lead to uh, some schools having major budget cuts and then having to cut programs cut staff and administration and so were counties like freaking out because they were like whoa why are we getting less money than we thought we were going to get and certain counties let's just uh, so according to northjersey.com The Department of Education said Wednesday that it will issue new aid notices to public schools statewide after initially using outdated tax data that could have left districts in a position to cut staff or programs. 
So <laughs> after recalculating state aid schools based on 2019 tax data, just one school district, Pemberton in Burlington County, will be affected. <laughs> that district received $2 million more than the state had originally said in its aid notice. And $2 million <laughs> is not chump change. No, it's not. And this article is saying that it remains unknown exactly why the state used outdata in the first place. The Department of Community Affairs typically compiles, analyzes, and publicizes tax data, including property, local, and county taxes, by January or February. This year, the department didn't publicly post the data until Wednesday afternoon. I don't. I don't think it was nefarious. <laughs> it was probably some, probably some like intern freaking out, like accidentally looked at the wrong data, and then you know this is probably what happened. I mean, that's pure speculation, but I doubt. I doubt Murphy was nefariously planning on <laughs> using the wrong data to get caught later. Exactly. I don't yeah. think there's a conspiracy here. I think yeah. it's like a human error. Or is it? No, who knows? Uh, we're here to purely speculate. Yeah. <laughs> A spokeswoman from Murphy said in an email, quote, the governor's office is working closely with both the Department of Education and the Department of Community Affairs to ensure continued coordination and avoid confusion to districts in the future. Well, that's good. Yeah. It'd be a real shame to figure out and feel like you're getting fired because there's budget cuts. (laughs) And then, you know, months later after you planned everything out, you find out actually there was no budget cuts. And uh, everything's fine. Everything's fine. (laughs) At least for now. For now. Um, We'll see, because they still had to recalculate it. I don't think they made it public Um, yet what's actually going to happen. Oh, so you might get fired. Yeah, so you might. Uh, The updated aid notices that will soon go out to all districts will help school boards judge whether to raise property taxes this year. Districts in which taxes exceed the state average tax rate are exempt from funding cuts in some circumstances, so some districts might want to raise taxes to level that in order to fend off cuts. Gotcha. And I think that's something we talked about last uh, episode of how county by county, they have their own taxes. So property taxes can fund schools or they can fund other different kind of public work projects. So this can actually uh, affect part of the mission of his budget, which we talked about last week, which was to try to lower property taxes. But there's no actual mechanism for (laughs) that. Like the increased school funding doesn't necessarily lead to that. So we'll find out. Yeah. And I think... um, once they start, because it says in this article to NorthJersey.com, the state's financial support is crucial to its roughly 600 school districts, and it has an effect on New Jersey's nation-leading property taxes since public education makes up more than half of property tax bills. And really quick, under a new law overhauling how the state funds public education, Murphy, a Democrat, if you don't know, is increasing the state's share over time. In his proposed $40.9 billion budget for the next fiscal year, Murphy plans to spend a record $9 billion on public education using the new formula. In his view, increased spending on education means property tax relief. But again, we said last episode. Yeah, check out last episode if you haven't (laughs) heard it. We talked a decent amount about um, the budget. budget. We dove real into it. And also in Murphy's Corner... We have his surgery scheduled. Yeah. Oh, no, it already happened. So uh, he's recovering successfully um, from surgery. There was likely a cancerous tumor that was removed from his kidney, um, according to NJ.com. So like last month, uh, according to NJ.com, it was revealed that uh, the governor was diagnosed with a three centimeter tumor on his left kidney. And it's like 92 percent likely to be malignant. uh, But they won't know until after uh, surgery. Yeah, exactly. 
So um, it's good that he called it early. And um, I just want to say uh, cancer is awful. So I hope the governor uh, it recovers. recovers. Um, no one, no one should die of cancer. It sucks. Yeah. That's all I got to say on that. Screw cancer. <clears throat> yeah. We are, we are uh, anti-cancer podcast. Yes. Um, so the millionaire's tax. Yes. I have, uh, I have some update on that. Last week we talked about in the budget that there was a proposed uh, hike on millionaire's tax. So last week, uh, uh, Senate President Stephen Sweeney said, quote, I was open to a millionaire's tax. If there was a billion dollars in new funding for the state's underfunded pension, I don't think we really need other taxes, period. Uh, the other taxes being the cigarette uh, uh, tax. Um, Check out last episode. Yeah. So uh, we're really going to plug our last episode. Uh <laughs> This week, Senate President Stephen Sweeney has something else to say. He says, quote, rather than raising taxes, we're saying it's time to fix things. So year after year, we'll find multiple savings. If we don't address this, we won't be able to afford to pay for anything else but pensions and health care. So Sweeney has come out against the millionaire's tax after being for it last week. So um, I don't really have much else to say about that. Just, you know, it's like there's some politics being played in the Senate. Good times, Sweeney. Oh, he, um, so he basically also um, said uh, something about it not being popular and people might flee the state because of a millionaire's tax. Because, you know, there's so many millionaires in, in New Jersey. There will be a mass exodus to uh, New York and Philadelphia, I guess. I but guess uh, <laughs> The benefit about being the millionaire is you can go where you want. Yeah. Um, So about it being unpopular, the millionaire's tax, according to a Rutgers-Eagleton Institute of Politics and Fairleigh Dickinson poll, 72% of those surveyed said they agreed to increase taxes on the millionaires, while only 14% opposed it. So actually, it's pretty popular. And I think New Jersey uh, citizens would overall feel happy with a millionaire's tax. So shame on you, Sweeney. Shame on you, Sweeney. Shame on you. Hashtag. (laughs) Okay, next up on our agenda of headlines we have the the stoli yes what is it stoli because i keep thinking it's the vodka it's, it's s-t-o-l-i but yes. I, I haven't heard audio of it so i don't know if people actually say stoli or say pronounce it out the stoli yeah <laughs> so um not the vodka everyone yeah not the vodka there's no, no need to worry uh last <laughs> week the nj assembly passed a bill prohibiting prohibiting stranger originated life insurance or uh Stoli, S-T-O-L-I. So per Investopedia, uh, stranger-owned life insurance or stranger-originated life insurance is a way to bypass the insurable interest requirement of purchasing life insurance. To legally purchase life insurance, the purchaser must have an insurable interest in the insured. That means the insured's death would adversely affect the policy owner's finances. Some definitions of insurable interest require that the purchaser and the insured have a loving relationship, such as one that exists between a spouse's or parents and children. So basically, this is actually pretty banned in like most states, from what I read, or a lot of states. So this is just like yeah. kind of a scam. Like it's like like it's like those things. Um, I don't remember if you remember years ago when Walmart got caught taking out life insurance policies on. Uh, like on its workers, yeah, well, and then like basically betting that old ones would die so they can cash in on it. That that's an example of uh, stranger originated life insurance. There's been a lot of talk about banning it. I mean, it depends because I think uh, some companies they have to have insurance on their employees because if an employee suddenly dies, they need to like it's not betting that they're going to die and you want to gain from that loss but it's it's betting that if that person were to die and they're mission critical having the funds to supplement that kind of time where that work is going to be i don't i don't know if that'll affect them at all that's a good question i'm not businesses but it's also a thing where um 
there's a lot of scummy uh, STOLI policies out there where people are basically just, um, it's like a huge market of just like fraudulent insurance policies. Um, Back in the day, you used to be able to, at train stations, like anywhere you could go, you could buy in a vending machine life insurance policies on people. And there were a number of serial killers who, like there's an infamous one who like built a murder mansion in the World's Fair. Are you serious? So he would buy insurance on his murder victims basically and as, that's economical like, yeah. That's, 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 yeah like you know and he would economical he would let them you know board his like murder hotel and he would subsequently murder them and because it was the world's fair you had a lot of people traveling from around the world to attend i think it was in st louis so they would just disappear and no one really know where they went and you would assume your loved one is you know maybe he's going on to travel the world because it's before cell phones it's before the internet and you had no way to trace whether or not this person just went on an extended vacation, but it was actually they were being killed off, and the owner of the establishment was collecting on life insurance. Wow, that's wild. So, to be to be to be clear, uh, probably most fraudulent cases of that don't involve serial killings. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I mean, and the extreme end, I, ho- I hope that's banned as well. Um, moving on to the next thing, I think it's uh, okay. So the RNC like is ramping up their campaign in New Jersey, and I just wanted to talk about that because why? Trump's not going to win in New Jersey. There's very little chance. Who knows, yeah, I mean, honestly, Purple who knows? State. Yeah. Did he win uh, last election in New Jersey? No, he was no. landslide to go oh, to Clinton. To so um, basically, I just want to say that the goal is to drive up the Republican vote for their candidates down ballot in New Jersey. Their, their goal is essentially to take back the House. That's the overall national GOP plan. They're really betting big that they can um, beat back the, that whole blue wave that happened and uh, take back the House. So what they did is the Republicans have established a joint fundraising committee called Trump Victory, which currently has more than $225 million as of February 28th uh, to spend on Republican down-ballot races, including those in New Jersey. And currently, the Republicans have spent about $4 million targeting four states specifically, New Jersey, New York, California, Illinois, and Nebraska. According to NJ.com, there are two Democratic incumbents that are specifically at risk. That's in the 3rd District, Representative Andy Kim. That's actually my representative. And the 7th District, Representative Tom Malinowski. So whether or not it'll work is another story. I, I think I mentioned this somewhat last week in relation to Larry Hamm. It all depends on the, what kind of the Democrats, um, how much turnout they can get. Because Trump's playing the game that he can whip his base up into a fury, and then uh, people will come out en masse for the polls uh, for him, which will help, obviously, Republicans down ballot. The Democrats need to play a similar game if they want to uh, retain control of the House. Yeah, and my, my thing that I... What disappoints me about the primaries is that as an independent, I either have to write someone in or, you know, if I don't want the whoever's the nominee for the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, or I just have to accept whatever they throw up there and vote for them. Yeah. And I think the thing that's missed out is the opportunity to con- not convert, but to recruit independent and, you know, new voters and registering people who haven't voted before. I'm talking about people who just haven't become registered and also younger voters who have now registered to vote becoming of age to vote. And I think it'll be interesting to see how the the DNC and the RNC, what they do to get the independent voters. Yeah, you know? that's, that's a good question. Because it's a, it's a big question mark. I think, I don't I mean this isn't quite accurate, but I think it's like a, I don't want to say like 25% of the population is Republican registered, maybe 25% is Republican 
Did I say Republican twice? Yeah, Republican Democrat. <laughs> yeah, independent voters are the largest voting bloc. Yeah. Uh, well, the largest people, most people in the United States consider themselves uh, not affiliated to any party. Yeah. And um, it doesn't mean they're centrists. It doesn't mean they're right wing or, or left wing. They, they can be all over the political spectrum because it's really a wide ranging uh, uh, group of people. And um, how you appeal to that segment of the uh, population who like doesn't really align with any party, it is an interesting question. Uh, the RNC and DNC have different approaches to it, so it'll be worth finding out how they both decide to do it. Okay, so uh, we got the voter registration uh, by county as of November 30th, 2019. So this is recent data. Uh, what do you think is the percentage of, um, I have the total here, unaffiliated Democrats and Republicans? Start with unaffiliated first in New Jersey. Can what I percent? Call my friend? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if it's me, no, because I have the data. I have the data. I want to say, I want to say, forty-five percent are unaffiliated because I think it's. I want to say it's half. Like I said earlier, I think it's like twenty-five percent is Republican. Twenty-five, roughly twenty-five percent is going to be Democrat. But I think almost half is has to be unaffiliated. That's actually pretty close. So it's thirty-nine point one percent is unaffiliated. Yes. You, then you have thirty-seven point nine percent Democrat. 21.9% Republican, and then 1.2% are like others, or like every other random party and, yeah. and just whatever else what people want to call themselves. So that's pretty interesting. I didn't realize how much uh, percent of the uh, New Jersey electorate consider themselves unaffiliated with any party, which does affect uh, their ability to participate in the primaries. Because exactly. uh, in New Jersey, you have to be registered. You have to declare to vote in the primary. Yeah, because I... I'm, I'm pretty sure, because I once went to a polling station, and again, I don't know how many of the listeners or people in this room right now, I, Amy, and you, have ever worked at a polling station before, and I did in high school, and it's a very slow job, a very slow gig. It pays, I think, like, 10 bucks an hour or something, but you get to get off of school, you get to hang out, and when I went to go vote recently in one of the primaries, I realized that it was not registered, and mm-hmm. the polling person said, oh, that's great, because you can vote for anyone that you would want to in the, the general election. And I thought, either way, well, you can do that anyway. I can do that. <laughs> yeah. So New Jersey is a closed primary state, which means that uh, voters who are affiliated with a par- political party, they're the only ones that can vote in that party's primary. So some states that are open... I think it was Texas. I, I can't remember. But at any rate, they were like Republicans were able to go vote in the Democratic primary and Ooh. choose who they want. Yeah. So it's kind of strange. But in, in New Jersey, if you're unaffiliated, um, you can uh, declare party affiliation up same to day. and include it yep, on the same day of the primary. Yeah. yeah. I don't know why that person said that to you, because uh, you, you can always vote for whoever you want in the general election. Exactly. That's, there's there's it no. Was, it was it was a funny thing. Cause it <laughs> it was, is funny. It was a Democratic primary, I think, that year. And, uh, Maybe they're trying to trick you. Yeah. And they were, it was one of those things of. My husband is a registered Democrat, and he was able to vote. So I brought him, unbeknownst to me, I was like, we need to go to the, to the election. And turns out, you know what? I couldn't vote. And Damn. then I left. And they, 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 if you go unaffiliated, you can register for either party mm-hmm. on the spot. But if it's Democratic primary, guess what? You can't really vote. If you're a Republican, you're just going to change your right, right. affiliation. You can't switch you your can, affiliation. And you can, you switch can do it beforehand. At any time, if you go I, online. I think... In order to participate in the in the primaries uh, in New Jersey, you have to register. Like, if you're not registered to vote, I think you have to. Be, it has to be like I think last I read, 55 days before the start of the primary. Mm. So we're in June something. We've got plenty of time if you haven't registered and you're interested. Next right. up, an exciting segment <laughs> on New Jersey's no-show senator. Yes, yeah, so I have some information on this. It's pretty funny, depending on how you. Depending find, how you look at it. Depending how you look at it. If you 
if you're very, you know, stingy about how your tax dollars are being spent, yeah. you might not like this. Yeah. But if you're someone who is okay with, you know, frivolous spending, this is, this yeah, is your well, kind of senator. I want your, I, I want your opinion on this, Casey. So <laughs> State Senator Nicholas Guattari, a Democrat in Linden, is being investigated for allegations that he has missed more than half of his work days in 2017 and 2018 when he was Linden's municipal prosecutor. So, uh, does he have a doctor's note? Yeah. (laughs) So here's what he says about it. He says, quote, I'm glad someone with with some scruples is going to look at these completely false, politically motivated allegations against me. He also threatened a lawsuit for slander against Lyndon Mayor Derek Armstead, who is basically saying, like, you know, you missed your job. You should, (laughs) we should investigate this. Um, From WNYC News, an investigation by an auditor hired by the Lyndon City Council found Skatari had missed more than half of his days at work over a two-year period and cost, and the cost of that time, or lost time, to the city was more than $147,000 in salary, payroll taxes, and pension benefits. Now, here, here's what I want to know. Was he just so good at his job that he was able to, like, you know, I got yelled at once at work where it was like, hey, man, like, you're coming in 15 minutes late. Like, what's the issue? And I was like, well, I get all my work done. So it was, it was you know, like, yeah. what it was matter? Was it similar to him? Was he, you know? Was he out, you know, in the, because that's the thing, with, with political offices, if you're an elected official, you have a duty to connect with your constituents, you know, mm-hmm. you know, go to ribbon cuttings, you know, you know. Go see the newborns, like shake hands, go sit in front of the stop and shop and, you know, buy the Girl Scout cookies, uh, read books to children in, you know, the library, do whatever, you know, do you. Yeah. Is he doing that? or is I don't he know. Doing- That's a good question. So, like, uh, I read a little bit and he said his defense is that he hired other people to do the job. Uh, for, for him, basically, uh, because he had other things to do um, oh related to, like, other uh, responsibilities that he had. And he, like, never, it, like, intentionally missed a court ca- case and didn't do anything when he was a municipal prosecutor. I wish I could do that. I wish I could just uh, go to work and be like, hey, yo, uh, boss, I'm not coming in. I uh, hired somebody else to do my job for me, and um, I'm paying them less. So I'm going to outsource that. I wish he was more transparent. I think if this kind of story were to come out about me and they were to say, hey, you're not in your, you know, your desk chair and I'm waiting for you to show up. If he had something where he could, you know, have some sort of alibi, like post agenda, like where in the world. Doctor's he, note. Doctor's note. Something to say that he takes his position seriously. And he's an elected official, right? It's- yeah, he's, a, he's currently a state senator. And uh, uh, the allegations deal when he was uh, Lyndon's uh, municipal prosecutor. Now, I don't know if those are overlapping. I didn't look that up, but I want to know if he's in his his seat as a senator. That's because those habits. <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. What's his voting record? Yeah, is he does he vote? Does, does he, he vote? is he is he just absent all the time? Does he hire a contractor to vote for him? Yeah, does he have <laughs> has some intern sit there press the button for him? Oh boy, well we'll see. Yeah, I guess we'll follow that and see what happens to him. <laughs> And also, what is the the mayor's motivation by bringing this up? Like, is he trying to go for that that seat? Um, I'm not sure. That's a good question. But um, from what I kind of read, it looks like the the mayor is kind of like you're you know you you have a job here and and you're not you didn't do it and you stole basically taxpayer money. So I'm like running to purge corruption in Linden. I think that's pretty much what, his, what yeah. was his angle. So I'm gonna be interested to see. Eventually, where this mayor, uh, Derek, Derek Armstead, yeah, Derek, where he throws his support is the senator is his seat up, you know, next election. Is he gonna support, you know, a challenger? Is he going, you know, 
Where does this fall? That's a good question. I mean, it's New Jersey, so it's politics is wild. You know? <laughs> <laughs> some people show up all the time. Some people don't show up. Some people take it serious. Some people yeah. take it as a, a presidential Some bid. people close bridges for no reason. <laughs> You know, uh, just just Jersey things. Okay, so <laughs> moving on. Next. Now we can talk about the Everlight coronavirus. Uh, do you want to you want to start with that? What yeah, do you have on it? Let's. Uh, okay, according to NBC New York, New Jersey gets second positive test for the coronavirus, and samples are being sent to the CDC for confirmation. And New Jersey now has its first two presumptive positive cases of the novel coronavirus. New Jersey acting governor Sheila Oliver said Thursday. Oh, probably because 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 uh, the the surgery that's Murphy's out of, out of office right, right now. So um, I I think I read is 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 this true they were, they were both in Bergen County. The first case was a 32 year old man who tested positive, but the samples being sent for confirmation. The second presumptive case was a woman in her 30s, also from Bergen County. The woman is a resident of Englewood, according to the city's mayor, and was being treated at Englewood Hospital. And this woman was exhibiting mild symptoms, and she was released and was going to be isolated in her home. So basically, the coronavirus is in New Jersey officially. But the crazy thing about all these different states, and we're going to be focused obviously on New Jersey, because this is a New Jersey podcast, the test themselves are few and far between and all tests that test positive are being sent to the cdc as this article says to confirm those samples and those positive results it could take something like 72 hours or more to find out uh from what i read about that for how long that'll take um the cdc came under some uh fire recently because uh their website was kind of censoring how many cases there like there used to be a list of how many cases there were on the website, and then there were, they, that was removed from their website. I don't know if it got after the backlash, if it's come back, but um, there's a lot going on with like uh, Trump mismanaging this, which does have a, an effect on on New Jersey, of course. Uh, uh, you know, we're a densely packed state with a lot of commuters into Philadelphia and um, uh, New York City, and uh, I mean, ultimately, viruses don't. You know, just stop at a border of anywhere like of a country, let, let alone uh, um, state borders. So speaking of that, because there's a lot of stuff, including with NJ Transit, NJ Transit says it's currently taking all precautions necessary to protect their employees and uh, uh, travelers uh, from the coronavirus. According to ABC7 uh, News, basically the uh, uh, NJ Transit is going to be working with uh, administration officials state and state agencies to uh coordinate like new cleaning rules and and training and stuff like that and i am pulling up the numbers for the new jersey transit daily ridership Hmm. so uh there's a number of lines um the there's 11 commuter rail three light rail and 871 bus lines yeah i didn't even think about that i was just thinking of the um the trains (laughs) yeah there's a lot of buses too especially in north Jersey. jersey And the number of stations, so you have 166 rail, 62 light rail, 30 bus terminals, 16,100 plus bus stops. And these are all figures from 2008. Do we have numbers the, the on daily, um, ridership. daily ridership? So yeah. 910,134 weekday, 398,534 Saturday, 128,777 Sunday. So that is, I mean, it's New Jersey Transit, so I don't know if anyone else has 
<laughs> experience the the luxury travel that NJ Transit provides. Yeah. But it's a lot of contamination opportunities. And the fact of the matter is these two Burton County residents, they are not in the articles that I've been seeing. They haven't been listing details about their travel. They're saying right. they probably have a low, you know, impact. But the fact of the matter is that they're not specifically saying that exposure. Right. And in California, you know, this is New Jersey, but in California, one of the confirmed cases was a person who was basically patient zero. They haven't traveled right. out of the country, haven't, you know, interacted with anyone who had traveled out of the country specifically that they could recall. So someone else who had coronavirus spread it and unknowingly so possibly more than likely because I think the it takes a few days to show any kind of symptoms. And if they are showing symptoms, it's basically like a colder flu. Yeah, for most have, cases. And then some people, it's it's yeah. severe enough where they have respiratory problems and have to go to the hospital. But from what I understand, that's mostly uh, older people and people with compromised immune symptoms. There's also some people who are like asymptomatic, so you know, they don't actually show any symptoms at all, but they actually have the coronavirus. It's like that with the most flu-like disease. I'm not a doctor, but just from what I read about this. Um, <laughs> I'm not a doctor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just wanted to go through a couple things the CDC said that um, you could do as, a, as just a person to try to avoid your chances of That's getting. Yeah, so obviously if you're, if you're sick, stay home. I know that's difficult if you have a job where they don't allow you to, but if, if you can stay home or work from home from being sick, uh, you should do that. You should wash your hands often with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth with unwashed hands. Also, avoid licking your fingers to turn a page. Yeah, I don't know if you saw it. Uh, I think it was someone from the CDC uh, was giving a speech about how you needed to not touch your hands and then, or face with your hands, and then she like licked her finger finger and turned a page. Just don't actually, you know what? In general, don't lick your fingers to turn page. Gross. Um, Firmly against that. I I I like. I remember I was uh, talking to somebody uh, when I was doing like some activism work, and he had like a big stack of papers. And he wanted to hand me one, and he like licked one and grabbed it. Oh. And I immediately was just like, "What do I do? I don't want to touch this anymore." Yeah. And I took it and threw it away and washed my hands like oh. vigorously. Completely irrelevant. Anyway, uh, the the other thing is uh, you need to avoid cl- close contact with those who are sick. Uh, I know it sounds like obvious, but some people like just don't <laughs> like at all. But it's also if you think you've had the cold, you're gonna you know interact with people still. And you don't exactly. think it's that serious, but the problem is, is that it could, you know, if you could have any exposure to anyone at this point, mm-hmm. it seems like right. you're showing cold if, symptoms. If you have mild symptoms and, you know, you, if you're younger and you have a much stronger immune system, then maybe you think like, oh, you know, it's fine with me. I can just go out and interact with people because I'm not very sick. But the issue is you can make other people very sick with compromised immune systems and who are older. Cover your cough or sneeze with a tissue and then throw the tissue in the trash, then wash your hands. Such basic information, but uh, I don't have the I don't have the numbers off the top of my head. But I remember reading it something like about half of Americans like just don't wash their hands after using the bathroom and stuff like that. Piscataway, according to tap into Piscataway, Piscataway schools issue statement addressing coronavirus concerns. So Piscataway, with the global concern about the coronavirus on the rise, school district officials released a letter to Piscataway families advising of the measures being taken to help prevent the spread of the respiratory viruses. In a letter sent on Friday, the school superintendent said, quote, as is the necessary case, we are taking precautionary steps to respond to the worldwide concern regarding the coronavirus. 
they are assuring the public that they are monitoring the, the information being put out by the CDC, the New Jersey Department of Health. They're keeping an eye on everything. And they are saying that in their schools, nurses have reviewed good hand-washing techniques with the students and staff as they do over flu season. In addition, classrooms, doorknobs, water fountains, and other surface areas are being cleaned and disinfected throughout each day. So they're ramping up their sanitary precautions in order to reduce the spread of any kind of germs. And this is a major thing because this virus, like the flu, can um, be transferred from person to person, but it also lives on surfaces for <laughs> a longer period of time. And those, if you can hear in the background, we have Stella, my mini golden doodle, coming in and out of our recording studio <laughs> <laughs> as she sees fit. So if you hear dog panting, it is her. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what Piscataway is doing. And they are listing um, in this article things that you can do to prevent the spread of any kind of respiratory yeah. virus. Schools are basically breeding grounds for this kind of uh, uh, spread because there's, you know, uh, class sizes of like 20, sometimes 30 kids uh, if one becomes sick and is in immediate contact with the vicinity and plus it's not like they're just only with the one group of classes they'll spread it to like every class member <laughs> so yeah. it's good to have good precautions uh, for this kind of stuff and the scary thing about the coronavirus is that animals and children can be carriers of this disease from what i've been hearing coming out of china and also all across the the globe it's like italy now too has a lot yeah. of cases so it's yeah. a matter of making sure that you're doing everything you can to make sure that if you are exposed and your children are exposed, basically, like, there are households that are being exposed and one person's sick and they're all basically getting coronavirus, making sure that the children are not spreading the the virus elsewhere, outside of the home. Because kids getting everything, they're, I've been open mouth coughed and sneezed on by small children, and the next day I'm sick, so... <laughs> With the coronavirus, making sure that if you are... Not to offend some viewers or offend listeners, some but uh, little kids are gross. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Teach your kids to wash their hands and cover their mouths. Yeah. Um, it's like a different kind of gross, because old people tend to be gross with the whole, like, licking their fingers and turning bad pages, mm -hmm. whereas, like, kids will just, like, sneeze on everything, and yeah. that's it, yeah. I have uh, another update about the coronavirus. So, um, according to NJ.com, a Homeland Security worker was told to return to work in Newark after uh, they, they were quarantined for coronavirus. So, what happened was a uh, Department of Homeland Security employee who traveled to China was told to return to her job earlier uh, this month, despite the protocol mandating a 14-day uh, quarantine period. Her boss basically told her to come back to work on February 10th in violation of the uh, quarantine. And uh, I, I guess she's uh, uh, represented by a union because they're uh, rightfully complaining about this and uh, doing what they can. It's not. Like, so this is an exa uh, exact example of what not to do if you're an employer, right? You might yeah. be thinking like, oh, it's not a big deal. They're just complaining. Like, oh, they're sick or whatever. <laughs> you're going to assist in the spread of, um, even if it's not well, a coronavirus, even it, yeah, possibly a yeah. life-threatening thing for a lot of older people and people with compromised immune systems. But also you're just hurting your, your own business if they yeah. do this. Like, uh, no one's going to want to go there. No one's going to want to go there. Um, <laughs> You're also just going to get other people sick. Like, I know this ha this, is, this plagues the restaurant industry where they, like, just a lot of people don't have uh, sick days or even, to, like, typical times of time off. So people are forced to come into work sick, and then, you you know, it's, it's, it's gross. You get uh, 
they'll spread it to like people who are just trying to eat food. To end the, the coronavirus segment on a lighter note, our president, according to the Washington Post, says, you know, he might have a natural ability to, you know, understand what the coronavirus is all about. And he's second guessing the professionals. So according to the Washington Post, uh, President Trump likes to say that he fell into politics almost by accident. And on Friday, as he sought to calm a nation grip with fears of the coronavirus, he suggested he would have thrived in another profession, a uh, medical expert. My uncle is a great person. He was at MIT. He taught at MIT for, I think, like a record number of years. He was a great super genius, Dr. John Trump. I like this stuff. I really get it. People are surprised that I understand it. Every one of these doctors said, how do you know so much about this? Maybe I have a natural ability. Maybe I should have done that instead of running for president. Trump boasted to reporters during a tour of the Centers, uh, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta, where he met with actual doctors and scientists who are feverishly scrambling to contain and combat the deadly illness. Oh, so he's um, uniquely qualified to talk about uh, the coronavirus because his uncle was a professor at MIT. Is that what yes. I hear right? So, Mike, why don't you tell me a little bit about Bloomberg spying on Muslim Americans? I'm going to start with some historical context to give people an idea of what was going on here. So, after the terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001, the George Bush administration made a push to uh, propagate the myth that the U.S. was under direct and constant threat of continued terrorist attacks. And this was done primarily for two reasons. The first was to justify his kind of imperial ambitions abroad in Afghanistan and two years later in Iraq. And the second was to justify increased authoritarianism internally. So, for example, you had the passing of the Patriot Act. You had the mass surveillance of Americans with the, uh, by the NSA. You had the militarization of police forces by selling them surplus military equipment. And you had other statewide measures taken in the name of counterterrorism. Michael Bloomberg played a pivotal role in not simply justifying America's turn to a national security state, but also implementing Bush's administration policies in New York City. And this is the same Bloomberg who recently dropped out of the U.S. presidential same, race. The same exact one. Same one. Yep. And this, I don't think, I don't think I heard this be brought up at all. I know his stop and frisk policies were brought up a lot. Yep. And and he claims he apologized uh, for the stop and frisk policy, but he really didn't. <laughs> Uh, but this has not really been brought up at all. Yeah, and then also his uh, his corporate governance of saying, you know, some pretty nasty things to women that yeah. worked for him. Yeah, Elizabeth. So this is something that wasn't touched on, really. Yep. So in 2001, uh, then-Mayor Rudy Giuliani was ineligible for re-election due to New York City having a two-term limit on its uh, mayors. This was a limit, by the way, which Bloomberg would later remove by essentially bribing NGOs and New York City politicians to support a constitutional change. So that's how much power he has with, uh, you know, that's a billionaire. Uh, that's a billionaire for you. Yep. So he was actually a Democrat at the time, but when he uh, wanted to run for mayor, he switched to a Republican Party and then started running. Uh, he won by circumventing New York City's uh, campaign finance laws by self-funding his campaign and outspending his opponent five to one. So wait, did he run for election post 9-11? Post 9-11. So, uh, it, okay. Yeah, 2002 was when he uh, ended up becoming a... Uh, so right after 9-11, uh, the whole uh, city is still um, reeling. You know, reeling and dealing with the with the, the, these horrific uh, terrorist attacks. And in comes Bloomberg, and it's... Uh, it's Republican Bloomberg. Republican Bloomberg, exactly. So in the aftermath of, the, of September 11th terrorist attacks, the Bush administration was, and pretty much the entire country, was looking at New York City. 
and uh, they wanted to make it a symbol of resilience in the face of terrorism. They had this whole drive for a push to return to normalcy, combined with like this mythology of uh, being under a constant threat of terror. Uh, and it kind of produced an effective propaganda campaign around keywords like safety. You heard this all the time. Everything could be done and justified to keep Americans safe. And that came, uh, this is where Bloomberg steps in. You get things like the stop and frisk program uh, in which uh, New York City streets were kept or said to be kept safe by subjecting African-Americans and other minorities to essentially a relentless police harassment and terror. And the broken window theory. Exactly. Like yeah. Exactly. So Rudy Giuliani was a big thing on uh uh, broken windows and pretty much Bloomberg's apology about stop and frisk was that actually Giuliani started it and I ended it but that's not again that's not that's not true at all um, yeah, and for, for listeners if you're not sure or not aware of broken windows theory it's the mm-hmm. assumption that the visual example of broken windows in a neighborhood when the I guess when the residents of the neighborhood aren't taking care of their neighborhood it perpetuates crime and exactly. violence because if you live in a you know, broken down neighborhood, broken window neighborhood, there's going to be more crime there. So the idea is to repair the broken windows. I remember there was a uh, an action of repainting the subway trains whenever there would be graffiti on them. <laughs> and that was supposed to, you know, eliminate crime. <laughs> right. So if you're like super harsh on minor things, yeah. it'll prevent murders and thefts from happening. Yes. But I'm, there's, oh, there's no evidence of this. And all it does is really to... Really, uh, uh, lead to police harassment of uh, African-Americans and other minorities. So in comes the war on terror, and it hits home with the mass surveillance of Muslims in the United States. The Bush administration's FBI created a program to spy on Muslims and mosques throughout the country. And central to that program was basically the entrapment of Muslims in so-called terror plots, which then the Bush administration would point to when they were revealed as a victory in the media, and they would say, like, look, we, we stopped a terrorist plot, you know, one that the FBI basically entrapped some poor Muslim into uh, doing. This is not widely reported on, so I won't spend, like, really any time talking about it because we have a lot to talk about. But uh, what's not as well known is the time when the NYPD conducted its own mass spying program against Muslims in New York and New Jersey. Bloomberg essentially modeled his NYD, NYPD surveillance program on the FBI's. According uh, uh, to The Guardian, uh, David Cohen who uh, uh, Bloomberg recruited to help create this program, was a former CIA officer who went on to become the NYPD's deputy commissioner for intelligence. Cohen was one of the architects of the NYPD's mass surveillance of Muslims. Uh, He's quoted actually uh, by one investigator as saying his goal for the program was, quote, take a big net, throw it out, catch as many fish as uh, as you can, and see what you get. Uh, According to one, yeah, that's terrible, right? According to officials quoted by the AP, Uh, The goal of the program was to have informants inside every single mosque within a 250-mile radius of New York City. Internally, these informants were known as mosque crawlers. Documents obtained by the AP showed that the NYPD had an extensive reach with their informants. Informants were placed in mosques all the way from Westchester County, New York, to New Jersey. The NYPD spying program expanded to include not just mosques, but also universities, student activist groups, cab drivers, food cart vendors, restaurants, and even a Dunkin' Donuts. What I want to know is, as the, like, informant, like, mm-hmm. were you going into a mosque and, I don't know, like, could you always see, like, in movies where the FBI agent, he's undercover, so he's got the glasses <laughs> yeah. on, he's got a hat, he's wearing all black, and he has, like, a little microphone in his, like, shirt, and then he's got the earpiece. Pretty much. <laughs> this is actually pretty much what was going on. Um, so I, I got a good example of that for you. 
So according to the AP, the NYPD monitored Muslim college students at schools far beyond the city limits, including the elite Ivy League colleges of Yale and the University of Pennsylvania. The NYPD even sent in an undercover agent on a whitewater rafting trip where he recorded students' names and noted in police intelligence files how many times they prayed. To give you an idea, uh, Muslims pray multiple times throughout the day, so this is not like a crazy thing that Muslims, like any sign of, of terrorist activity, but Muslims pray multiple times a day. I mean, I wish... Not saying like that that's great that he was being they were being spied on on a white water rafting trip, but that FBI agent must have been like really excited to be nominated to do that because he gets a free day. Yeah, instead of being the one who just, being the moss crawler that's just stuck in the uh, uh, listening to stuff they don't want to listen to. Getting a little sun. A little yeah, it, it's it's crazy when you think about it. This is what taxpayer money was wasted on uh, yeah. just harassing Muslims with this stuff. So I, I said FBI agent, but. It, uh, the NYPD. It, it was all NYPD. Yeah. So not even FBI. Uh, not that it makes it any better, but, but it's, it, this is how crazy it is. They yeah. basically... They, and Bloomberg made the NYPD act like his own personal FBI with the same amount of powers and stuff. Yeah. So to give you an idea of just how far-reaching the NYPD's surveillance of Muslims was, here is a small incomplete list of colleges I found where the NYPD had placed informants in Muslim student groups. City College, Brooklyn College, Baruch College, Hunter College, City College of New York, Queens College, LaGuardia Community College, St. John's University, Yale, Columbia, the University of Pennsylvania, Syracuse, New York University, Clarkson University, both the Newark and New Brunswick campuses of Rutgers, the State University of New York campuses in Buffalo, Albany, Stony Brook, and Potsdam. And they say money can't buy you happiness. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it's incredible, it's just the amount of uh, spying on student groups that spying they did. And spending. You're obviously targeting and profiling and doing a heinous thing, but you're also, as Stella chews her phone in the background, <laughs> but you're also using all this money because that doesn't come for free. And the power and the wealth that you're able to just do this and then also run for president. Yeah, and, and, and hide it. Uh, this was actually pretty widely reported on. It was huge. Uh, the Associated Press actually won a Pulitzer Prize for their uh, um, reporting on this stuff uh, at the time, but it didn't come up at all recently, and it, it actually gets worse. So poli police also were interested in Muslim student groups at Rutgers in New Brunswick in New Jersey. In 2009, an undercover NYPD officer had a safe house in an apartment not far from the campus. The operation was blown when the building superintendent stumbled upon the safe house and thinking it was some sort of terrorist cell, called a police emergency dispatcher. He saw, um, like, surveillance equipment, like, uh, books on, like, terrorism and all this other stuff. And well, he like was the, like, holy the red, crap. The red string connecting the dots. Yeah, ex exactly. So he was like, oh, my God, this is insane. So Aaron Maté, an award-winning journalist then with uh, Democracy Now!, interviewed uh, Ghadir Abbas, a staff attorney for the Council on American-Islamic Relations, in May 2012. Now, Ghadir Abbas... What uh, do you know um, were the actions that the NYPD conducted in New Jersey? Uh, so, for instance, in, in Newark, New Jersey, uh, the NYPD uh, conducted a wide-ranging program of mapping the Muslim community. So this involved uh, analyzing what the Muslim community comprised, uh, its institutions, uh, the businesses that cater to the Muslim community, and it conducted what is essentially a comprehensive analysis of the Muslim community in Newark. And in order to conduct this analysis, 
process uh, that involved, uh, in Newark and in other place, uh, placing informants in, in mosques, uh, as well as deploying NYPD officers to take pictures of, of those mosques, to write down license plate numbers uh, of cars parked in those mosques, and to uh, uh, be what they what the NYPD has termed on their listening posts. So uh, NYPD officers and uh, and informants uh, strategically placed throughout the community, not to uncover criminal wrongdoing, but to establish a uh, infrastructure of continuously monitoring the community, and 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 that that is uh, what has caused uh, such a um, a negative effect on, on on the Muslim community in New Jersey and New York and beyond. It's the case that uh, when you monitor uh, a community, that affects the ability of that community to function, because uh, what what one does in, in, in private and what one does uh, when there isn't a reason to believe the government is watching is different uh, than what one does uh, when the government is watching. And for years, since September 11th, uh, American Muslims everywhere, uh, in the New Jersey and New York area included, have long harbored the suspicion that uh, the government and law enforcement is listening. And the revelations of the NYPD program really uh, uh, confirm that, yes, in fact, uh, law enforcement is listening. And it's not only a violation of uh, American Muslims' constitutional rights, but it is a uh, uh, an egregious waste of resources that the NYPD is spending time and money monitoring the innocuous religious exercise of the Muslim community in New Jersey, in New York, and, and beyond. I mean, could you imagine if there were listening devices or recording devices put into Catholic confessionals? Yeah, exactly. Uh, you wouldn't want to say certain things. Yeah. So I read certain stuff of, of, of Muslims at the time, like, wanting to talk about uh, in their mosques, uh, like, hey, what's going on with the war on terror? Like, do we support this kind of stuff? Uh, like, the, yeah. the things are going on. And other uh, Muslims there being like, telling younger ones like what are you doing stop like you're going to bring attention to stuff they're like monitoring us like they had that that actually literally affected their ability to organize as a community and talk about these things they're worried and you know for certain times they were dismissed you know people said at the time that this was just you know uh, uh this wasn't happening and, if, and you know you get the kind of justification it's not it's not happening like they're just being paranoid but if it is happening it's a good thing yeah, <laughs> so you get that kind of awful uh reasoning because that's the thing now today with everyone when you you wonder if the the FBI is listening on your phone, or yeah. if you're talking or Google searching, you know, dog bones, and then suddenly you get advertisements on your phone, mm -hmm. on your different social media platforms for dog bones. Like, uh, how do you really know? And it's, it's cookies. Are, are these apps listening to us? All that kind of stuff. Exactly. And that paranoia that lives today, but... It forms a, a level of self-censorship, especially exactly. when you think it's the government, and you rightly think so, that they're spying on you, because they think that that you're a hostile force. Yeah. So the, the the Bush administration and Mike Bloomberg participated in this, blanketly considered basically all Muslims a hostile presence that needed to be monitored and controlled, which that mirrors what was going on with stop and frisk in a different way. It was more yeah. covert in the case of the Muslims. With stop and frisk, it was up in, in your face with them just stopping, yeah. I forget what it was, like millions of of uh, stops, meaning most most uh, African Americans in New York were stopped multiple times. Uh, so I have some information about what was the results of, of the spying. Yeah. 
and lawsuits. In May 2012, uh, New Jersey Attorney General Jeffrey Chiesas had concluded a three-month review of the NYPD's spying with the assistance of the CIA of Muslims in New Jersey. By the way, uh, the CIA is not supposed to work internally, so it was actually illegal for them to do this. The review found that New Jersey Muslims have no recourse to state law to prevent the NYPD and CIA from monitoring and cataloging their daily life. On June 6, 2012, eight Muslim Americans from New Jersey filed a federal lawsuit demanding the NYPD cease its surveillance of uh, Muslims and Arab communities. The lawsuit, Hassan v. City of New York, was a landmark case. According to the Center for Constitutional Rights, Hassan v. City of New York is the first case ever brought on behalf of Muslim Americans who were unlawfully targeted and surveilled under this program. The Center, of Constitutional, uh, Center for Constitutional Rights notes that internal NYPD documents confirm that the surveillance program was not tied to suspicion of criminality and in fact produced zero leads to terrorist activity after more than a decade in operation. In fact, it's remarkable. Internal NYPD documents were so clear on the criteria that they used to target Muslims for surveillance. The NYPD used what they called 28 different ancestries of interest to justify the surveillance. So among these were, if you were Egyptian, Pakistani, Somali, Sudanese, other Middle Eastern and African ancestries, and even, believe it or not, American black Muslim was considered its own category uh, subjecting you to uh, police surveillance. The lawsuit faced substantial opposition in court. In February 2014, Judge William J. Martini of the United States District Court of the District of New Jersey, who, by the way, was appointed by George W. Bush on November 19, 2002, dismissed the lawsuit due to a lack of due to what he believed was a lack of standing by the plaintiffs, and because the judge believed that the plaintiffs' claims of discrimination was not plausible. I'm going to quote from the 10-page summary uh, opinion of the District Court. This is what the judge reasoned. The plaintiffs in this case have not alleged facts from which it can be plausibly inferred that they were targeted solely because of their religion. The more likely explanation for the surveillance was a desire to locate budding terrorist conspiracies. The most obvious reason for so concluding is that surveillance of the Muslim community began just after the attacks of September 11, 2001. The police could not have monitored New Jersey for Muslim terrorist activities without, uh, without monitoring the Muslim community itself. While this surveillance program may have had adverse effects upon the Muslim community after the Associated Press published its articles, the motive for the program was not solely to discriminate against Muslims, but rather to find Muslim terrorists hiding among ordinary law-abiding Muslims, end quote. I thought it was particularly reprehensible how he basically says that the, the only reason why there could be a diverse effect to the Muslim community is because the Associated Press published this stuff, so now they know about it, even though Muslims long had thought that this yeah. was what was going on and they had reason to believe that this was going on. Um, so this terrible reasoning by the district court um, was explained by Center for Constitutional American Rights legal director, uh, who was part of the so the case uh, Hassan versus uh, um, City of New York, uh, Beher Azmi. I'm sorry, I probably pronounced that wrong. He said, "Quote: In addition to willfully ignoring the harm that our innocent clients suffered from the NYPD's illegal spying program." By upholding NYPD's blunderbuss Muslim surveillance practices, the court's decision gives legal sanction to the targeted discrimination of Muslims anywhere and everywhere in this country without limitation for no other reason than their religion. The ruling is a modern-day version of the discredited Korematsu decision, allowing the wholesale internment of Japanese Americans based solely on their ancestry. It is a troubling and dangerous decision. End quote. So uh, this actually this went on for a while. In March 2014, the CCR filed an appeal to the Third uh, Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, in July 2014, dozens of organizations, including the New Jersey branch of the ACLU, 
the Jewish Partnership for Justice, and the New Jersey uh, Muslim Lawyers Association filed a brief in support of the appeal. They basically all had their different reasons, but it was all basically the same. This is unconstitutional, it's discriminatory, it's awful. On October 13th, 2015, the Third Circuit Court of Appeals issued an order reinstating the case. In their summary opinion, the court likened the injuries suffered by the plaintiffs to those at issue in Brown v. Board of Education and agreed that there were parallels to the infamous targeting of Japanese Americans during World War II. The court actually invoked Justice Robert Jackson's dissenting opinion in the Korematsu v. United States case. I'm going to read a little bit just from what the court said. Quote, We can apply only law and when we must abide by the Constitution, or we cease to be civil courts and become instruments of police policy. We believe that statement of Justice Jackson to be on the right side of history, and for a majority of us in the quiet times it remains so, until the next time there is a fear of a few who cannot be sorted out easily from the many. Even when we narrow the many to a class or group, that narrowing, here to those affiliated with a major worldwide religion, is not near enough under our Constitution. To infer that examples of individual disloyalty prove group disloyalty and justify discriminatory action against the entire group it's to deny that under our system of law, individual guilt is the sole basis for deprivation of rights. What occurs here in one guise is not new. We have been down similar roads before. Jewish Americans during the Red Scare, African Americans during the Civil Rights Movement, and Japanese Americans during World War II are examples that readily spring to mind. We are left to wonder why we cannot see with foresight what we so clearly see with hindsight, that loyalty is a matter of the heart and mind, not race, creed, or color." End quote. On April, yeah, I, it's, it was, I thought that was a powerful statement and a huge rebu- uh, rebuke of um, Judge Martini, who clearly could not see either with foresight or hindsight yeah. what the effects of his decision would be. On April 5th, 2018, Hassan versus City of uh, New York came to an end. A landmark settlement was reached with the NYPD. Under terms of, the terms of the settlement, the NYPD was forced to reform its unlawful discriminatory surveillance program. The Center for Constitutional or Center of Constitutional Rights lists four major practices the NYPD had to agree to. First, they had to not engage in suspicionless surveillance on the basis of religion or ethnicity. Second, they had to permit plaintiff input to a first-ever policy guide, which will govern the Intelligence Bureau's activities and publish the guide to the public. The third, they had to attend a public meeting with the plaintiffs so they could express their concerns about the issues in the lawsuit directly to NYPD commissioner or senior-ranking official. Four, they had to pay businesses and mosques damages for income lost as a result of being unfairly targeted by the NYPD and pay individual damages for the stigma and humiliation harms they suffered for being targeted on the sole basis of their religion. Do you know how much uh, those settlements were in total? Uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't find that out. It's, um, like- it's probably a lot. <laughs> it deserves to be a lot. Yeah. So I wanted to talk, we mentioned, again, this comes from Bloomberg. That's what Bloomberg's uh, NYPD was doing when he was in power. So what has Bloomberg had to say about it? In 2012, while, uh, while these lawsuits were going on, Bloomberg said, quote, we have to keep this country safe. As a side note, what did I say? That this is the <laughs> kind of rhetoric that they use to justify discriminatory and authoritarian practices all the time. He said, we have to keep this country safe. This is a dangerous place. Make no mistake about it. It's very cute to go and blame everybody and say we should stay away from anything that smacks of intelligence gathering. The job of our law enforcement is to make sure that they prevent things. And you only do that by being pro- proactive. You have to respect people's right to privacy. You have to obey the law. And I think the police officers across this country and at a federal level, state level, and city level do that. But having said all that, you have to, you do not want to, 
you are not going to survive. You will not be able to be a journalist and write what you want to say if the people who want to take away your freedoms are allowed to succeed, end quote. He said it, and in 2012, he defended it again. He says, quote, uh, the police department goes where, they are, where there are allegations and look to see whether those allegations are true. That's what you would expect them to do. That's what you would want them to do. As we saw, that's actually not what they were doing at all. They were uh, blanket uh, targeting Muslims and student activist groups all across New Jersey, New York, and in some places in Pennsylvania. In February 2020, in case you think, well, did Mike Bloomberg learn uh, his lesson after eight years? <laughs> no, he didn't. He said, quote, we sent, to some, we sent to some officers into some mosques to listen to the sermon that the imam gave. We were very careful, and the authorities that looked at us said, yes, you complied with the law, but we had every intention of going every place we could legally to get as much information to protect this country. We had just lost 3,000 people at 9-11. Uh, at of course we're supposed to do that. So Bloomberg has not at all apologized or shown any kind of uh, remorse for what his NYPD has done uh, in that. And partly I think that's because that's just who Bloomberg is. He's yeah. an authoritarian right-wing capitalist billionaire who uh, was completely fine with having the Bush administration uh, mass surveil Muslims throughout the country. And he wanted to be known as the person who kept New York safe from African-Americans uh, from Muslims and all these other, you know, basically oh, all non-white people. Yeah, and that's kind of what uh, his legacy is. And um, It's interesting because he, here is a billionaire who obviously has billions of dollars and can do whatever he wants with it. And there are some billionaires who run for office and, you know, seek power and some billionaires who don't. And he's a billionaire who ran for office, got elected, and decided to... Got elected and changed the law so he can continue to get elected exactly. as mayor. <laughs> and he has, you know, today been known for saying that he... He was... he It was like a Freudian slip of saying, like, he bought... Yep. He bought Congress seats and he bought, you know, elections and he is owed certain things yep. because of buying that. And I think he definitely thought that he was owed the the... The presidential seat and now he's dropped out so it's one of those things of his history and his political ambition his history of his involvement in politics he's not a republican he's not a democrat he is bloomberg like, exactly <laughs> i think what our listeners need to understand is uh the relationship between his wealth and power right which might not be too clear from this example but bloomberg when he became mayor there was like i said there was a two-term limit and he spent hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, basically bribing NGOs uh, through like his philanthropy and uh, uh, basically buying politicians to get that constitutional change so he can continue going. And his whole goal was to basically reshape New York into how the uh, Bush administration wanted to use it as like a model city of resilience and, you know, all that kind of stuff in the face of terrorism. And um, when you ha have a growing section of the population just become ultra wealthy, they're able to do whatever they want because wealth does equal political power. Bloomberg bought and established uh, his own news network and, and stuff like that. And I mean, they're not going to report about his terrible, like this. This, is, this isn't this <laughs> is something that they're going to talk about. Uh, they're not, they weren't even really reporting on his campaign because they wanted to hide the fact that uh, any negative things that were coming out. And even in debates, he was very cautious about his statements. And you could see when he was talking about uh, whether or not China 
was a dictatorship. Uh, he, yep. he, and in terms of whether he's a dictator, he does serve at the behest of the Politburo, uh, of their, their group of people. But uh, there's no question he has an enormous amount of power. Um, and um, he, but he does play to his constituency. You can negotiate with him. That's exactly what we have to do. Make it seem that it's in his interest and it's in people's interest to do what we want to do. You can see when someone is censoring themselves as a politician, when you're censoring yourself for a business interest, you're not, you shouldn't be running for office. If you have any business interest in running for office, the government is for the people, by the people, you know? It shouldn't be for the business and by the business and Bloomberg being his own like name brand, it's insane that he would even be allowed to run for that high of an office because look at Trump, you know, he's having people come in and negotiate different contracts with the government is having them stay at Trump hotels and Trump properties. And also they have not only just their hotels and stuff like that, but they have different properties. Like, like Exactly. It's a level properties. of profiteering off of uh, public expense and from the public office that it is criminal. Just wrapping up, Bloomberg kind of represents the, the merger of a very dangerous trend in the United States, which is the kind of opportunism by these rich billionaire politicians mixed with um, that national security state ideology where we need to empower uh, law enforcement, uh, surveillance, the NSA, CIA, FBI, and also um, a kind of uh, authoritarian state capitalism. Uh, the, the goal of the government is to ensure the rich and powerful become more richer and more powerful, and it's led by people who are rich and powerful. And um, we absolutely cannot let people like Bloomberg have even the minorest bit of political power uh, formally, because uh, even as a private citizen, he exercises a tremendous amount of political power through his wealth. And I think a lot of voters will look at these issues and say, well, and that's the thing with Trump is mm -hmm. you look at your day to day as an individual voter and you say, is my day better or worse now that Trump is in office? And for a lot of Americans, you know, their taxes aren't really changing. They're still able to get to work. They're able to, you know, have food on the table. They have a roof over their head. Everything's fine for them. And the issue is, it's not necessarily, is everything fine for me, but is it okay for my neighbor? Is it okay exactly. for my neighbor's neighbor? Is it okay for people in certain areas that I'm not familiar with, but <laughs> I might not be familiar with their culture, their religion, whatever. Is it okay for them? Because the United States of America is built on diversity, diversity of thought, diversity of profession. In theory. In, yeah. in theory. Yeah, yeah. And it's supposed to be a melting pot and, you know, the American dream is anyone can come here and if they are law-abiding citizens, you know, conquer the American dream. And when you have billionaires like Bloomberg who are able to profit off of literally everything they put their hands in, and able to create power for themselves and obtain it in a way that they can abuse it, it becomes not an issue of, is my day-to-day -day okay? But you have to start evaluating more and more, is that billionaire's day-to-day -day much, much better for them exactly. than it is for me? My taxes might not be going too high. It might be increasing, but it's something I can afford. But is the billionaire, like the, who owns Walmart, the... The Waltons? The Waltons? No. But well, whatever, <laughs> yeah. Some billionaire. But the billionaires, are they being taxed at the same rate? And more often than not, it's not. So one one uh, last thing to consider is 
uh, Bloomberg as mayor of New York presided over one of the most egregious abuses of, of power that there was. He had the NYPD spy on people far out of his jurisdiction. It would have been wrong if it was just happening in New York City. But it was he was doing a 250s, 300-mile radius around New York City. Imagine, with the help of the CIA, which is illegal, the CIA is not supposed to operate internally in the United States, imagine what he would do with the powers of, of the president. Uh, he was willing to do that kind of abuse on uh, marginalized communities as, as a mayor. As a mayor. <laughs> what is going to happen if he was president? So um, it's good that he dropped out, but we have to also look at, like, not just, that doesn't mean he's not a powerful person. Yeah, he's still going to be donating to campaigns across the country, both Republican, both and Democrat. Yep. And he's going to do whatever he can as not the President of the United States, but as a very, very wealthy and influential donor. Exactly. So. So, Casey, <laughs> we need to stop this podcast until we figure out what the hell was going on? Why was there five governors in New Jersey? What I'm going to do is educate everyone on New Jersey's first female governor because her departure <laughs> led to a time where New Jersey had five governors in basically a month. <laughs> <laughs> so Christine Todd Whitman, she was the first female governor of New Jersey, and she came from a wealthy, prominent New Jersey political family. Her father made a fortune as a building contractor, and his work is tied to Radio City Music Hall and Rockefeller Center. Huh. And she grew up riding horses and fishing. She attended private schools, and uh, she graduated from Wheaton. <laughs> from Wheaton with a with a bachelor's degree in government, and she married John Whitman, who was a, a businessman and investment banker. So. Very wealthy individual. Wealthy meets wealthy at (laughs) private school. Exactly. So she has been known to refer to herself as a Rockefeller Republican, which is a term that was used uh, in the 1930s and 1970s. Um, So it's basically a moderate to liberal view on domestic issues. So it's a nod to Nelson Rockefeller, who was a governor of New York from 1959 to 1973, I believe, and who was eventually the VP of the United States from 1974 to 1977. And she referred to herself as a a pro-choice Republican, which was, you know, today, looking back, is kind of... You would never hear that. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think there's any pro-choice Republicans right now, as it seems like. A very devout... uh, I would say, say pro-lifers, and um, Christine Whitman, um, she was basically a, a career politician. She, when she married um, her husband, Mr. Whitman, he, like I said, he was an investment banker and businessman, so he spent some time in London with her and their children, and when she came back, um, when they came back to New Jersey, she ended up becoming on the board of trustees of Somerset County College now known as Verdon Valley Community College. She spent two terms on the board of Chosen Freeholders of Somerset. So I don't know if a lot of listeners or if you're familiar with New Jersey political structure, but you sometimes have a city council or a town council, or you could have the freeholders. So a New Jersey freeholder is an elected part-time legislator at the county level of government. Yeah, I have, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm laughing because I, I have the. So in the New Jersey State Constitution of 1776, where the term freeholder was first used to describe it, they say uh, 
all inhabitants of this colony of full age who are worth 50 pounds proclamation money clear estate in the same name and have resided within the uh, county in which they claim for uh can they can claim a vote for 12 months immediately preceding this election so yeah it, it basically had to do with people being of, of people of money being able to uh yeah, represent I, so it also says uh i'm looking at the mercer county the county capital or capital county um definition of it it says it's also derived from the old english term used to a person who owned an estate of land for your debt so okay yeah. <laughs> there you go so she gets elected to the the somerset board of freeholders and she serves as the deputy director and the director of the board and um freeholders in somerset they serve terms of three years and they stagger it so that um say you're elected now in three years you have to run and then there you have another like another freeholder who runs like has to run next year you know what i mean so gotcha it's, it's, it's kind of like the senate so like every two years it's a third of the senate yeah is up so it's not just like everyone getting replaced at the same time yeah and that okay. makes it easier of a transition period if someone comes and is elected in and then she, while she was uh, on the board of freeholders, she helped to construct the, the new county courthouse. Like, shout out if anyone's been there. I was there once for a parking ticket, and it's very beautiful, so thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and then she served on the New Jersey Board of Public Utilities from 1988 to 1990. And then she did a U.S. Senate run for New Jersey in 1990, but she lost, but it was a close election. And then in 1993, she did a governor race. And um, a fun fact about her is that her family was so involved in politics that there were there were articles about her own mother being tapped to be the New Jersey governor. And that was back in like the 1950s. So oh, okay. that's how entrenched uh, her family was in politics. So people, were, people were expecting her mom to actually be, be governor or something. Governor. Huh, that's so interesting. It's, it's really wild. And also, like, her, her mother and grandmother were both Republican National Committee women. So her family, and I don't want to say it's strange to see women in politics, but back then, to have it be your grandmother be on the, the Republican National Committee, or, you know, it's, I don't want to say it's a heard of, because obviously it's heard of, but right. it's something that was very surprising So she, it sounds like she basically comes from a line of uh, uh, strong political women yes. of rich means uh, <laughs> uh, in New Jersey politics. Exactly. Uh, that's, that's interesting. So that's a little bit of her. And while she was, uh, this is where I wanted to learn more about her because she was New Jersey's first female governor. That's important. Um, it's very important. And so she gets elected to the governor's office and she wins on a plurality. So she got more votes than any other candidate, but didn't receive more than half of all votes. So, cast. so were th there was more than just one other candidate then. Yes. Yeah, so she she won, um, but she won. And the funny thing about it is that she, her winning, and not winning by a majority, says that more than half the state didn't want her as governor. Right. And that's something I think is very interesting. And she, uh, in a Washington Post article, she said they, as in. Um, the Republican National Committee that wanted her to run. Um, they wanted to stress the, the devolution of power from Washington, and they thought that this would be um, the most dramatic way to do it, to get a governor. And New and she also said that um, for New Jersey, the other reason is probably because uh, that she wasn't a presidential wannabe, basically, because there were a lot of governors 
still today that use the governor's office as a stepping stone to become president. Right, Chris Christie. And, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, more like famously would be Woodrow Wilson, which I was researching, you know, New Jersey governors. And he was a New Jersey governor. Oh, I, for- obviously I, I forgot he was a New Jersey governor. Yeah, so he was a governor from 1911 to 1913. He was a Democrat. And he w- had an ac- academic reputation and was very inexperienced politically. So the DNC at the time were, they had previously lost five governor races and he defeated the Republican nominee by 65,000 votes. And this is while Taft, who was running as Republican presidential nominee, he won by 82,000 votes in New Jersey. So he immediately, when he became governor, he was a presidential hopeful because here's this person who can who is relatively unknown in the political sphere and also became one of like a a major position so new jersey because it's so diverse and so well populated to have someone who stands out in that you know field almost instantly becomes a presidential hopeful like you can see a number like every year so we've had chris christie famously do you want to do you want a woodrow wilson fun fact oh yes all right here's some trivia for uh you and the listeners so do you know that the first American motion picture uh, uh, screened in the White House was Birth of a Nation, the terribly racist KKK film? And that was done while President uh, Woodrow Wilson was president. Well, Woodrow Wilson... Terrible racist. Terrible, I mean, but it, but it makes sense because he... It makes sense. Comes from the time. He, it, it's for the time. He was the first Southerner to become president since the Civil War. Mm-hmm. So he was Virginia-born Capricorn. Uh, and he spent most of his youth in Georgia, and... The Democrats just placed him in New Jersey at some point? Well, That's... no, he, he naturally came there. Right. Because he's a, he was an academic, he ran, he didn't run, but he became the, the president of Princeton. Okay. And because of that, he was based here, and I think just his connections got him to the presidential seat, but again, this is why Christine's so interesting, because she had, didn't really have that much of a political ambition to become president. She was just like, I'm in New Jersey, born and raised, gonna run for governor because I think I got it. That can be appealing to people too because then they're like, uh, you know, I'm not, this isn't just a stepping stone for my career. I want to help New Jersey. That probably had some appeal for her, right? Exactly. So she becomes governor and instantly there's scandal. It's gonna be New Jersey. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. So, so what happens with her? So, what happens with her? There, there's a few scandals that her office is hit with. A couple days after her, you know, her win, her campaign manager makes a comment <laughs> that is uh, extremely, you know, racist and negative. Obviously, so is it, is it so racist that it can't be quoted? No, on it, here, okay, it can be quoted. Um, so her. <laughs> So her campaign manager, Ed Rollins, is reportedly quoted at saying that he spent nearly half a million to suppress the black vote. Whoa. <laughs> oh. That's wrong, right, Stella? Stella's against racism. <laughs> she immediately um, demanded and received uh, both an apology and a retraction from her campaign manager right after that, and she... You can't really apologize your way out of that. Yeah, and it's right. It's your campaign manager, so you think that there's, like, a, a big connection. But for her, she widely refused it. And it was also, there was an investigation after that statement that mm-hmm. proved, like, nothing 
of that matter happened right. and he not meant for the campaign manager yeah. like yeah you really can't get out of that I mean, you, you say stuff like that it's over yeah so that happens and she she then um, is that the only scandal or is, is no, there's it, a lot there's two more it would would it be new jersey if there was only <laughs> one scandal for bungum only one scandal yeah so then while in office she lowers the state tax by 10 percent. she lowers the income tax and this seems like a really great thing. And she ended up repealing a um, 1% sales tax increase that her predecessor put in while she was in office. And it's all, it sounds well and good, but the problem with that is that after she leaves office, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of debt that's accrued and a lot of, uh, you know, state funding that is, you know, absent of funding because a lot of things were on taxes for the state. And if you reduce it all it's all well and good for the voters and getting reelected but you know down down the line of her uh for success yeah, yeah. <laughs> who have to raise taxes then it's unpopular exactly what ends up happening is that you know after her campaign manager says that in 1995 i'm gonna pull up the article she according to a upi archive governor christine todd whitman one of republicans rising stars created a fervor Thursday, when she was quoted in a British newspaper saying that young black males play, quote, jewels in the crown by fathering illegitimate children. Wow. So she gave an interview to the Sunday Independent in which she criticized House Speaker Newt, at the time, Newt Gingrich, is planned to cut young unwed mothers off of welfare. And she basically said, uh, as regards... <laughs> As regards to unwed mothers, there's a game called Jewels in the Crown that young black males have, and it's how many children you could sire out of wedlock, she said. And she oh said, you God. can't legislate against that. <laughs> and the thing with her her office is she keeps, you know, kind of putting her foot in the mouth kind of thing, where she is then later, she apologized for that, and she said that she kind of misspoke, and she was speaking about how she was in... Um, I think a Newark AIDS clinic and she was talking to the public and they were saying that people are having unprotected sex basically and having children and it's leading to the AIDS epidemic because there's drug use and all this kind of stuff so she ends up putting her foot in her mouth a few times of saying that's, that's one way to put repeating racist tropes that the Reagan administration <laughs> loved to use all the time and she's using this to because there was she later in office um she does that in 1995, and in also in 1995, she's also, and this is, a, I think, after, so she, for the Republican Party State of the Union response, she is nominated to speak, and she's um, the first woman to do so, and it was the first uh, response given to a live audience, and she, after that, in 1996, she rejected the Advisory Council's uh, recommendation to spend tax money on a needle exchange program to reduce the incidence of HIV infections. Oh my God. Um, so unfortunately it sounds like our, our first woman governor wasn't that great. Yeah, and it's, <laughs> I, I don't wanna, she is, I'm not gonna offend her, she is saying some racist things, but she's doing it because of her Republican stance. So the needle right. exchange program, she- Wasn't like, what you're saying is, she wasn't a unique phenomenon, it was part of a uh, like Republican push all around yeah. the country to so in, in do that, similar things. And that she was, kind of liberal in that she was uh, a pro-choice Republican, you know, a Rockefeller Republican. She was also kind of 
having her feet to the fire of she can't if you have a needle exchange program in her eyes it was your your approving of drug use and if you have a needle exchange program off of tax dollars then you're kind of you know allowing that drug use to happen but then people who are you know pro needle exchange programs are saying well people are going to use drugs anyway right and, and you have examples of uh in case our listeners right now you can look up portugal and switzerland both have needle exchange programs that have actually reduced the rate of both things like hiv but and other uh like needle um related like diseases that come from that exactly. and, and and also like the actual drug use yeah. has declined from these kinds of programs and she's kind of like a a person of her time where she is going to AIDS clinics and she is going to the NICUs and seeing kids that are newborns coming off of drugs and seeing all of this like horrible stuff and that exposure is making her think well this is what needs to happen but right mixed with like her background ideology yeah produces kind of like a reactionary take on what's immediately happening yeah and she's and she's saying she the whole you know jewels in the crown game that was you know <laughs> Apparently, like, a racist comment, but she's saying it because she's hearing that from, you know, an African-American person that was in the clinic that was telling her this is what the kids are doing. Right. But being a blue was, it, is blood, that, was that confirmed? Did that actually happen? Or was that just what she said? It's one of those political things where people say, oh, Joe the, Joe the plumber. Oh, yeah. Or you know, they just, like, have stories. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That anecdote yeah. that you pull. And she, that was her anecdote that she was pulling. But it was one of those things of here's a prominent, wealthy Republican politician. Yep. And she is being exposed to these things that she has no connection with. Like, had she not been governor, would she have been going to those clinics and, like, talking to that population of people and, you know, forming these hard opinions about things? Probably not. So did the, is this what um, sank her governorship or no? Eventually, because it gets a little worse, guys. Oh, <laughs> man, just when you think a couple of racist comments and just some other things. Uh, <laughs> but no, this is New Jersey. No, it's going to take it to so the next this level. Is, this is the strike three. So she... Like I said, for the, the needle exchange program, she poo-poos it, basically. And then, um, so she, regardless of, of these things that she does, um, she's also re-elected for governor for her second term, defeating her challenger, McGreevy, who ends up, he was the mayor of Woodbridge Township at the time, um, who then becomes governor after her, after the five governors. At the end of her governorship, the New York Times was reporting that she was on the shortlist of vice president candidates in 2000 for George Bush. George so, W. Bush, right? George gotcha. W. Bush. Um, so, so it actually sounds like there's a little more political ambition than it seemed. Yeah, and her thing is she was, in different articles, she was saying that she would never say no to anything. So she's a very you know competitive person. She's not going to that she's looking towards a political ambition but she's if she's offered it she might consider it it's like it's like how all the politicians say like oh i don't have any plans to ever run for president and, yeah. and then like they're called right didn't you say you didn't want to run for president it's like well you know i mean am i gonna well, deny I'm gonna, it i'm not gonna say no yeah so according to the new york times whitman seemed to be on a short list of vice presidential candidates in 2000 right up until july 8th 2000 days before the opening of the republican national convention in philadelphia when a four-year-old photograph surfaced showing an oddly smiling Governor Whitman surrounded by law enforcement agents frisking a black drug suspect on a street in Camden. Okay, so it kind of sounds like there's a trend here of, of uh, racist things, uh, things <laughs> actions, and, and words 
coming out of our, uh, you know, uh, former governor. Yeah, so in 1996, this is for Wikipedia for everyone, ladies and gentlemen. In 1996, Whitman had joined a New Jersey State Police Patrol in Camden, New Jersey, uh, which was one of the murder capitals year over year. Mm -hmm. Um, So her being there is very strange to begin with for New Jersey residents and anyone that's not a New Jersey resident. Like, you don't just go to Camden. Yeah, nothing good happens in Canada. The aquarium is nice, but... The the aquarium is very nice. Go there for the aquarium. Uh, And then leave. And then leave. (laughs) During the patrol, the officer stopped a 16-year-old African-American male named Sharon Rolax and frisked him. The police did not find any contraband on his person, but Whitman frisked the youth as well. A state trooper photographed the act. So in 2000, you know, when the, you know, the Republican National Committee is getting together... Uh, to figure out who's going to be the nominee, who's going to be the VP on that ticket for president. Uh, the image of the smiling governor frisking the, the young male was published in newspapers statewide, drawing criticism from civil rights leaders who saw the incident, incident as a violation of the man's civil rights and an endorsement of racial profiling by Whitman. And especially since the, the guy wasn't, you know, arrested or charged, they had no contraband on him. So for her, to use that as a photo op after the fact of he's being, you know, searched. <laughs> also in the context of having already had previous scandals related to yeah. uh, racist uh, um, um, words said by her or statements. Yeah. So uh, it just does it's not a good look. Not a good look. And then uh, Whitman later told the press that she regretted the incident, of course, and pointed her efforts, pointed to her efforts in 1999 to oppose the New Jersey State Police's, Police Force's racial profiling practices. And then in 2001, when the, the young man learned about the photograph, he then tried to sue Whitman in federal court, claiming that the search was illegal, number one, and also constituted as an invasion of privacy. But the appeals court agreed that the act uh, did suggest an intentional violation of his rights and that he was uh, detained and used for political purposes by his governor, but upheld that the trial court's decision that it was too late to sue. So oh, really, so it's basically a technicality on like what statute of limitations. Exactly. So this happened. That is awful. Years later, and it's you know when you learn about it because it was a four-year-old photograph. Right. So when in 2000, when it's the RNC, it's being you know shortlisted to BVP, he's now seeing a photo that he would have never seen before, and so technically it'd be like five or six years. So when you're looking at it, the photograph becomes widely publicized in 2000. And it happened four years prior, and he's going to court to So it, I originally looked at it like, oh, that's a short time, but it's actually an increased amount of time. It's unfortunate this happened, and that he wasn't able to sue her because it's obvious that like she was using it as a photo op. Exactly. Ugh. So yeah, not a good look. Not a good look. Um, for, I mean, there are a number of not a good looks for New Jersey governors. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So after the scandal broke, George Bush elected Dick Cheney as his running mate in the 2000s. A far less controversial figure. (laughs) (laughs) He only shot his friend in the face. Yeah. Um, And ran the presidency. You know, you know, these kind of things. So all this leads into, because I wanted to report on her, and I'm excited that New Jersey had a first female governor. Very unfortunate that it was uh, clouded in racist... uh, practices and policies and, you know, photo ops, oddly enough. Uh, <laughs> and this, So did she leave or did she quit? Like what, she, hap- what, hap- what happened to the end of her uh, governorship? The end of her governorship happened because Bush 
appointed her basically um after she's dropped from his VP, you know, shortlist, she is then she is then appointed the administrator of the EPA. Really? So <laughs> so from 2001 to 2003, <clears throat> she handles that. And because she at the end of her term, like she served two terms, so her being dubbed like the shortlist was at the end of her uh, governorship. So then she leaves the the governor's seat and then begins the the month that New Jersey had five governors. So <laughs> So she so just to be clear, she left uh, around like what date? So we can start we can start the count of start, how many start governors. Start the count. So Christine, she leaves office. I mean, she's technically in office January 18th, 1994 until January 31st, uh, 2001. And she heads up the um, the EPA January 31st, 2001. But the issue comes that she resigns from office to join the administration of the newly elected President George W. Bush. And at the time of her resignation, the New Jersey Constitution stipulated that the Senate president retains that position while also serving as acting governor. So when she resigns from governorship... This makes a... So there's not, a, like, a new election. Like, a, like some states no. will have, like, emergency elections for, like, a, 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 a vacant position. Yeah. We're just like, we'll put the, whoever the Senate president yeah, is. Yeah, because uh, the issue was that there was the, uh, the governor race anyway. Um, and she, her actual, um, the person who would succeed her ends up long-term being McGreevy. And until he takes office, there's a month until... Basically, McGreevy is sworn in and all that great stuff. So there's a scramble in in January to fill the seat. So DeFrancesco, who is a the state senator of a Scotch Plains area, uh, becomes governor when she resigns. And he basically says he is the most powerful New Jersey governor ever because he was the leader of both the Senate and the executive branch simultaneously. Wow. Yeah, that sounds pretty powerful. Really powerful. But in in actuality, after him, there are two other Senate presidents that end up taking it. So next up is John Farmer. So he ends up becoming... Sorry, Don, uh, Donald uh, DeFrancesco looks like he... Well, that's about like a year filled out, finished her term, and then uh, yes. then we start rapid firing going through uh, governors. Yes. Okay. So John Farmer Jr. He is the um, he becomes the acting governor for ninety minutes on January eighth, two thousand two. Donald, who is uh, acting governor because he's the president of the Senate. Right. And. So she leaves office and he takes over because he's the president. Right. So it looks like he goes from January 31st, 2001 yes. to uh, what? January 8th, 2002. Yes. So then John Farmer becomes governor because DeFrancesco, he served as acting governor, but his term as Senate president ended with the mandate of the <laughs> outgoing Senate on January 8th, 2002. So technically he couldn't be acting governor anymore. Yeah, he couldn't be acting governor anymore. And McGreevy, who was elected governor, um, he couldn't be inaugurated before January 15th, 2002. So the state of New Jersey didn't have the lieutenant governor position until 2010. So the succession rules specified that the next in line for governor after the Senate president and the Speaker of the Assembly 
um, which both were vacant on January 8th, would be the Attorney General, which was Farmer. So he was only Attorney General and go acting Governor for 90 minutes? Yes. So <laughs> he was automatically made the acting Governor, but then right after him, Republican Bennett and Democrat Cody became co-presidents of the Senate the same day. So he has, you know, the ninety minute segment. What did he what did he do for those ninety minutes? Did he did he like Like did he sit in his chair? Like yeah, I don't, I don't know. know. Like he couldn't even travel to the governor's mansion at that time. Yeah, like, I guess he, depending on where he is, he would literally be like, Hey, you're you're governor and he's like, Cool, so like how long? For like ninety minutes, you're like, I can't do anything with that. Yeah. So he is, you know, a brief stint as the governor of New Jersey. Um, which is no small feat because people, you know, spend their yeah. <laughs> their lives trying to do this. So we're at two now for so, January. Yeah, keeping the count up. Keeping the count up, and so uh, Republican Bennett and Democrat Cody, they're both senators. Um, they are co-presidents of the Senate on the same day because the Senate had been evenly split between the two parties. Oh wow! Yeah, and then it would be later divided the last week of the term among them as governor. So they decided there were six days left. Until McGreevy could be, you know, inaugurated as governor. So they split it up. So Bennett would serve on January 8th, 2002 to January 12th, 2002. And Cody would serve from January 12th to 2002 until January 15th, 2002. So what what did they do with their uh, three days each? So with their three days each, John Bennett, who is the Republican... As acting governor, he did a, a few things in his three days. So, <laughs> during his service uh, acting as governor, Bennett signed legislation into law, appointed judges, granted a pardon, and created a nursing advisory council, and hosted several parties at the governor's <laughs> mansion. Because uh, <laughs> why not? Because why not? And the, and the nursing advisory council was a tribute to his wife, Peg, a nurse. And then... His Democrat. I don't think there's anything really notable about Cody's. Cody didn't uh, throw parties as well? Cody didn't seem to throw parties. Uh, he, as governor of New Jersey, but the funny thing about Cody is... Cody was all business. He was all business, uh, but he would later also become governor from 2004 to 2006 when Jim McGreevy, who preceded him, became governor. Um, he would then precede McGreevy. So, okay, with, with, at Cody, we're at four. Yes. So he just wrote it up until up McGreevy. Until McGreevy. Making then, five in making January. Making five. And then after McGreevy resigns in 2004. I think it um, missed another scandal, right? Yeah, I missed a <laughs> number of scandals. But uh, he ends up becoming governor again because he was, he eventually becomes the president of the Senate again. And then becomes the governor until the next uh, governor's election. Wow, what a what a uh, what a whirlwind! What oh yeah, what a wild <laughs> period of time. So it sounds like uh, before this rapid firing of of governors, you had a um, you had in a, New Jersey terms a relatively stable Christine Todd Whitman who was governor for a while and then ended in scandal, and then it was just a rapid fire of of uh, hijinks. Yeah, basically. of uh, <laughs> of scandal uh, of um, parties. Of uh, ninety-minute governor reigns. I mean, when in New Jersey, really? Um, and it's funny because Christine Todd Whitman was Republican, and then you have the her real pred like her real uh, succeeder being Jim McGreevy. 
but in between you have four people who are just, you know, flying by the seat of their pants and taking up the governorship. Yeah. And they're both, and it's funny because within those five governors, you have Christine who's a Republican, Donald who is a Republican, John who's a Republican, and then followed by John Bennett. So you have John Farmer who's a Republican, who's the 90-minute guy, I'm pretty sure. And then uh, John Bennett, who's a Republican, and then Richard Cody, who's a Democrat. And I think it's funny because you had the Republican reign, and then right up until the end, those last three days, it switches over to Democratic leadership, and then it really crosses over to Democratic leadership with um, Jim McGreevy. Right. And then after uh, Richard Cody takes over, after Jim McGreevy's resignation, he holds the office until uh, John Corzine, a Democrat, takes over. And then after that, you have Chris Christie. But yeah, that was the the month that we had five governors. What do you think about that time period of uh, uh, just going from Christine to women to all these rapid fire? Like, um, I, I guess it's not possible now because we have a lieutenant governor, governor position. Do you think that position, the creation of a lieutenant governor, was made to stop this kind of instability from happening? Uh, I think that is actually why it was done, because it's almost kind of like a... A failsafe of if and when, when actuality is New Jersey. So when there is a, because it's a guarantee, yeah. when there is a scandal with the governor's office and you need someone fast, you know, dial 1-800, you know, what is the, the substitute governor? Um, <laughs> Lieutenant governor. Lieutenant governor. Yeah. So, so the other thing I thought was interesting about this is, uh, so I didn't realize before the lieutenant governor position that the acting governor would be the president of the Senate. If you think about that, that's a strange combination of powers. You have the uh, your leader of the uh, upper chamber of our, because we're bicameral, we have the assembly as the lower house, and then the uh, upper house of the legislative branch is the Senate. So you'd be the head of the upper house of the Senate and also uh, the de facto governor of, so you'd be the executive branch. That's a, that's a combination of executive and legislative power that, that would make you an incredibly powerful governor for the duration of, a, uh, um, of your acting governorship. Yeah, and that's why... Um the one Republican temporary governor just was like, okay, I'm going to take this chance. I'm going to, because he knew the following party that was going to take over was going to be the Democratic Party. That's probably why he was celebrating so much for the days. He was like, we can get anything we want done. I can, I don't have to veto anything. I don't have to worry about vetoes. I am the person who also signs that legislation. Exactly. And he's issued, he issued a pardon, which I, I would. Oh, I didn't even think about that. You know, because you would have the ability to do that. Um, as the yeah. governor, and he was able to pass laws, and he was able to appoint a judge, and it's that kind of stuff that, you know... has long-term effect on... Um, long-term effect. Yeah. And that's why we now probably have the, uh, the governor junior. I keep forgetting what it's called. Lieutenant long. governor. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> it is governor junior, if you think about it. It's like like the um, VP of governors. Exactly. So... I mean, and that's that's funny. That's a funny story because it's that's how that originated. Is yeah. people are scrambling. You shouldn't have five governors in a month. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, certainly not. It's not a very stable way of running government. Not that New Jersey finds a way to be stable <laughs> anyway. We we, we practically we practically walk into scandals. <laughs> but yeah, so that's that's it for this week's episode. Uh, um, we probably have some housekeeping stuff. We have a Instagram now. If you want to, yes, if you want to plug it, we have an Instagram called uh, Jersey Matters Podcast. And do we have Twitter? I'm working on that. Work I got, I got, yeah, yeah, I forgot to do that, to be honest. So follow What's us that on one? Instagram. We have a, a WordPress. I'm working on uh, finishing that. It, it's it's <laughs> see, I'm I'm technologically like not completely illiterate, but like I'm like slow at doing that stuff. 
combined with being a perfectionist means it just takes me a long time to do basic things. So soon, soon we will have a uh, um, a website as well where you'll get to. I'll put some. We'll put some like fun content, content in there. Uh, you can follow us on there and uh, yeah. definitely check out the Instagram. Yeah, every every weekday we're posting content about New Jersey news and New Jersey politics, and that's where I got my inspiration for the segment today because I saw five governors in a month, and I thought that seems strange. Why? <laughs> Why that many? Well, what happened? <laughs> um, now you know. And now you know. So thank you for listening, everyone. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week for more uh, news, uh, current events, and other strange things if we find any. And um, thanks for listening.